Today's episode of Your Stories is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity. They asked us not to read an ad, so enjoy the show! Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your Stories, to me, has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there, no questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, maybe not not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story, and their story is your story, and then it's our story, and then it's a podcast, so it's everybody's story, and then you've shared it, and gosh, that's great, huh? And even if you don't think you're a nerd, you probably are. It's easily the most Midwestern thing I've ever been a part of. Hi everybody, I'm Eric Arno, and this is part two of the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories podcast's fifth annual outing into Fan Fiction February. For these episodes, we partnered with local production collective Versus the Universe, a wonderful collection of folks who make live shows, podcasts, music videos, and all sorts of good stuff, and they brought a handful of their crew along to share in the revels of the night. This episode, you'll hear from friends Logan Dean, Liz Brodzinski, Sam Begich, and Aaron Amendola. You'll also get music from myself, Dwight Hassler, and Katie Johnston-Smith. I don't have a lot of plugs for you at this very moment, so this opening segment will be brief. But rest assured, we're working on some really slick stuff that we'll, we'll be announcing soon, uh, including a couple of live shows, a new podcast, and maybe even some more substantive changes. I bet you can't wait for that. But in the meantime, episodes of Your Stories dating to a year back, plus earlier best ofs and special episodes, are always available on our website and iTunes for your listening and revisiting pleasure. And the rest we keep archived on our Patreon site. You can check out that site at patreon.com slash nerdalogs. And if you like our shows, support us for whatever monthly value you feel is reasonable. Folks who hook us up with $5 a month or more gain access to that digital archive, including old your stories, uh, bonuses from my other podcast, Blank Cassette, and more. Or if you don't feel like paying money to support us, that is totally cool. You can also rate and review the show on iTunes for free, and that is really, really helpful. Uh, with all that said, let's dive back into the fan fiction. We're going to do a couple of Beach Boys songs that are featured in various media. Uh, the first one's from a video game called Bioshock. Bioshock. And the second one is, well, you'll know what the second one is from. Yeah. <laughs> may not always love you, but long as there are stars above you, you never need to doubt it. I'll make you so sure about it. God only knows what I'd be without you. What I'd be without you If you should ever leave me 
though life would still go on, believe me, the world would show nothing to me. So what good could living do me? God only knows what I'd be without you. Without you, God only knows what I'd be without you. Two, three, four. John Stamos in any way. I'm sorry to do that to you. It was written by Uncle Jesse. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, John Stamos was a Beach Boys backup singer for a while. And drummer. And drummer. Also true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, Fun fact, you guys are learning so much about Full House tonight. I love it. How much more do you want to know? (laughs) So our first speaker for this half... Uh, customarily before the show, I said to people, hey, how do you want me to introduce you? And this guy said, pizza. So, pizza, here's Logan Dean. Hey, 
ate a torta from a truck earlier, but that's all I've had to eat today. Um, pizza. What? Uh, so this is actually my first Your Stories was the fan fiction show two years ago. Um, so this is sort of like my Your Stories anniversary, which is great. And uh, yeah. I, uh, I write dumb shit like all the time because I'm a comedian and that's what you're supposed to do. And I was going through my Google Docs, and it turns out that I've been writing a lot of really, really weird uh, fan fiction. Like, earlier this year, I wrote uh, a stand-up set as a bard who does stand-up in Middle Earth. I almost did that, but those are really bad. Um, I have, a, I have a, a thing called that I've been working on for a while called At the Mambos of Madness, which is my Lou Bega Lovecraft fiction. <laughs> but seeing as how I did this show two years ago, and I did it with a story called Fat Orson Wells and the Curse of the Gilded Goblet, I thought I'd revisit that character, which is just uh, Orson Wells with a really fat voice. So... <laughs> This is Fat Orson Welles and the Curse of Solomon's Cone. <clears throat> Ooh, I haven't done this voice in a while. It's like, uh, it was the evening of October 11th, 1983, when I was first made aware of the cone's existence. I had, been, I had recently supped upon the fruits of my labor at a fine restaurant in the Spanish Riviera. They had been made aware of my impending arrival and had taken the time to prepare for me a meal of such epicurean delights that I was not aware that I had been dining for 17 hours until, upon exiting, I noticed the sun's waning position in the sky. <laughs> As I wedged into my hired car, preparing to sleep for one to six hours, my attention was co-opted by the clearing of a man's throat. Mr. Wells, the voice began, before I struck the man across the temple with my cane. <laughs> He crumbled into a ball on the floor of my car. <laughs> Satisfied with this development, I rested my cane against the seat and immediately went into a mild comatose state. <laughs> Waking from this slumber, I noticed the man was still patiently waiting. As I raised my cane, he cried, Wait, please! <laughs> At this plea, I lowered my cane and motioned for him to get on with whatever business he had. <laughs> Mr. Wells, I am here as an envoy from the estate of the late Lord Derringer. I raised an eyebrow, feeling layers of skin fold above my eye. <laughs> Lord Derringer had once been a trusted confidant and friend until a faithful expedition to the jungles of Brazil to find the lair of a jaguar god said to be terrorizing locals and the owner of an artifact that was said to contain great power. <laughs> Though we never found the lair, I was able to evade a cannibalistic tribe by executing a cunning, a cunning plan of hobbling one of Derringer's legs and fleeing alone into the dunkle. <laughs> we had not spoken since, and he was not found until two years later, leading the very tribe I had left him to die at the hands of. Late, I questioned? Yes, Mr. Wells. Lord Derringer has re was recently the victim of an accident. This piqued my curiosity quite a bit. Since the Brazil mishap, Derringer had been quite the stickler for safety. It is said he hadn't left his manse in nigh on a decade and rarely met with outsiders. And what kind of accident has befallen my old adversary? Sir, I do not wish to speak of such matters in such an open environment. I understand. I motioned to Drummond and said, To the townhouse! We drove in silence for the better part of an hour, during which I picked at a baked capon that had been brought to me during my slumber. <laughs> I offered none to the young man, though he could have used the hearty meal. <laughs> he stared gloomily out the window of the car and wiped sweat from his, wiped sweat from his brow frequently. 
I always kept the heat in the car turned high so as to produce a thin layer of perspiration. It helped when exiting the car as a sort of natural lubricant and kept my parts of my body cool. <laughs> Arriving at my townhouse, I was helped to the door by Drummond. In this time, I decided to ask the young man his name. I am Finley, sir. I am the current executor of Lord Derringer's estate. Well, I thought Charles Dowson to be Derringer's counsel. Don't tell me old Chuck has had some misfortune befall him as well. Mr. Dowson is currently indisposed. I am here to deliver a message under the directorate of Lord Derringer himself. <laughs> At this, I was surprised. No doubt this message was some sort of jab or taunt by my old friend from beyond the grave. Very well, we shall convene in my study. As we convened in my study, I motioned for the young man to have a seat while I leaned against a granite slab in the corner that served as the closest thing I've had to an office chair in two decades. <laughs> Derringer recently came into possession of an artifact that he had spent the better part of his life searching for, an artifact of great power that he said you informed him of many years prior. At this, the man reached into his valise and removed a small metal box. Derringer and I frequently searched for intriguing items, I told him. In our shared use, it was together, but in the last many years, we did so apart, often in rivalry. Indeed, Mr. Wells, Lord Derringer often spoke of you as a brother. Though you had a falling out, it was his final wish that this object be given to you. <laughs> I see. I wobbled my way toward the man and took up the box. I noticed now that it was cold to the touch. Opening it, I was amazed at what I beheld. This cannot be. The Cone of Solomon? It was lost to time. I turned back to the young man only to find that he had disappeared through the door, his job finished. I returned my attention to the item in the box. The cone was six inches long and hewn from solid silver. Inlaid in its uh, sides were jewels. It is said that King Solomon used it to trap a creature similar to the North American Wendigo that brought cold spells to his kingdom, which caused the cone to be cursed. The curse was as such... Anything put upon the cone would melt, whereas anyone who touched the cone would instantly freeze. It looked like a fancy ice cream cone. <laughs> As I beheld this treasure, I noticed a piece of paper within the box. It was a handwritten note. My old friend, you be it began. If you are reading this, I have passed on. I leave you with a treasure greater than any the world has ever seen. I give it to you in hopes only you can destroy it. If not, I hope it kills you, you fat slob Lord Derringer. <laughs> ever, the charger, ever the charmer, I said to my study. It had been my lot recently in life to destroy cursed objects like this. But in that instant, a strange feeling came over me, and without thinking, I touched the cone. Normally, this would kill a man, but because of my immense girth, I was able to touch the cone for 1.7 seconds before the, it overcame me. <laughs> This sensation that followed was not unlike the slowly lowering myself into the pools of cold water I do on some occasions. As soon as I touched the cone, I withdrew my hand. I had not instantly died, as the story foretold. I quickly deduced that I could handle the cone because of my life. I took up the cone once again and threw it into the hall. From there, I began to kick it across the floor toward the entrance to the patio. Once outside, I gave it one more good shove into my pool, which is consistently filled with burning nitrate film stock containing footage from my lost masterpiece, Don Quixote. <laughs> a peculiar thing happened then. For a split second, the flames in the pool froze and glowed in eerie blue. After that moment had passed, the clone itself began to melt. 
a curious fate for a curious object. Seeing as I had committed more physical exercise in the past ten minutes than I had in the past decade of my life, I summoned my chefs to prepare a trio of young hens for a late evening snack as I went across the estate to have my suit forcibly removed by being cut from my body. (laughs) I sit now, having supped upon these delicious birds, a large satin drape covering me, composing this memory to the page while it is still fresh in my mind. Thanks. Thank you so much, Logan Dean. Happy anniversary. Thank you for coming back and for regaling us with another tale of Fat Orson Welles. Did you guys see how cavalierly Logan tossed out that first page when he was done with it? Damn, that was so cool. I'm going to have to try to do that sometime. I'm going to try after this introduction. Guys, coming next to the stage, returning to the Versus the Universe crew, we have the co-host of the Cooperatives podcast, which is a podcast where a couple discusses games that they can play together and kind of the how how that works in the din- dynamics of a loving caring relationship that's really cool this is Liz Brodzinski Woo! I feel cool I'm going to need that later hello i'm going to can i lift this up you can. Will it work please oh boy all right this is less of a uh, traditional fan fiction and more of an essay because I am an attorney and that's how we express ourselves. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> it begins, what is fan fiction? Is it a new story with old characters or an insertion of the author into the original story? Maybe it's the same story with a slightly different ending. We've seen several different examples here today. This question has been on my mind since I was lucky enough to work on a copyright lawsuit involving fan fiction over the last year. You think I'm using the word lucky as a joke, but I really love this stuff. Uh, So I learned during that process that there's actually no accepted legal definition for the concept of fan fiction. And it's tempting, as an attorney, to say that a thing for which there is no legal definition simply does not exist. But since I'm also a human and a partaker of media, I'm comfortable living on the undefined edge where this is concerned. (laughs) As I pondered the existence of fan fiction over the last year, I thought back to my first brushes with it. While I was growing up, I had unfettered access to the internet-connected computer in our basement, which was the same floor as my room and two floors away from the rest of the family. I did what any red-blooded American adolescent with free reign access to an internet-enabled computer would do. I spent long hours late into the night reading Harry Potter fan fiction. (laughs) Uh, This was way back when the idea of a horcrux was a mere twinkle in J.K. Rowling's eye, and some of us were convinced that Harry and Hermione had a shot. The first, and perhaps only thing I've written that can be generously construed as fan fiction, was for an English assignment my junior year of high school. We had to create an imaginative retelling of the Shakespearean play we'd been reading in class. And by that time, I had already been victimized by a mafia-style performance of Julius Caesar, so I was determined to do something more original than simply painting the same story with a different colored brush. We'd been reading The Tragedy of Hamlet, Prince of Denmark, which is among other things, a story about an emo rich dude who literally can't even. (laughs) I decided to rewrite a portion of the story that didn't sit right with me. The plight of Ophelia, the young woman who goes crazy and maybe kills herself, in part because her dad dies, but mostly because Hamilton is a dick. In my version of events, Ophelia got sick of Hamilton's shit and ran off with the pirates, allowing him to believe that she's drowned so his character can still be motivated by her death. She even paid off some gravediggers to use someone else's body for the pivotal burial scene. This fits seamlessly into the original text, and as far as I'm concerned, this is what happened. <laughs> is that fan fiction? It's not exactly on the same level as imagining Harry and Hermione's first date. 
I obviously wasn't enamored with the original story of Hamlet, but I'm a fan of Shakespeare generally, so call it fan fiction, call it a parody, call it satire. The important thing is that it's okay to want to improve on things you like or things that you don't really like but everyone else seems to love because, after all, everything we love is problematic and can be changed. There's a famous copyright lawsuit involving the book Gone with the Wind, that Gone with Wind that was adapted into a movie so successful that not even James Cameron can compete, depending on who you ask. So, Gone with the Wind on one hand, and a book published nearly 70 years later in 2001 called The Wind Done Gone. <laughs> As you might imagine from the title, The Wind Done Gone is a retelling of Gone with the Wind from the perspective of one of Scarlett O'Hara's slaves. So the lawsuit was based on copyright infringement and whether The Wind Done Gone was a specific type of fair use for copyright called parody. Now, in the general non-legal world, we think of parody as a funny take on something, but for purposes of a legal analysis, uh, it can be either humorous or critical. So the legal test for parody involves many multi-factor tests, because that's what we like to do. But uh, at least one court did hold that the wind done gone could use a parody defense. Sadly, for people like me, the case settled in 2002 before we could get a definitive ruling. You can still buy The Wind Gone in stores with a cheeky label attached that says the unauthorized parody of Gone with the Wind. Similar to my amateur A-plus paper, Ophelia and the Pirates, The Wind Gone is a retelling of a much-beloved story from the perspective of one of its marginalized characters. Both original stories may have treated these marginalized characters in a way that was normal at the time they were written, but that doesn't mean they're above reproach. By changing the perspective on a classic story, you can still appreciate the original while also showing flaws in history. This is, by the way, way more credit than 16-year-old me deserves for that paper, because at the time I mostly was focused on how I thought Hamilton was a jerk. And it was completely unfair that Ophelia's entire life was controlled by the way that the guys around her acted. Turns out I was a budding feminist. As I've gotten older, I've come to appreciate that the ability to see and reimagine flaws in classic stories stories that could be called institutions, I think you see where I'm going with this, is crucial. I know that my favorite golden age science fiction stories have some deeply flawed portrayals of women and pretty much no portrayals of people of color. I'm comfortable saying that Shakespeare is flawed because he was shitty to women and other minorities. It doesn't mean I want to erase Shakespeare from history or discount the fact that he or whoever he may have borrowed some of his works from created hundreds of words that we still use to this day it means that going forward, I believe we can do better. I've learned that the capacity to think critically about and to be critical of things that you love and institutions that have been around for many years is an incredibly important part of existing in a nuanced society. And resistance to the idea that you can critique something and still respect parts of it has huge impacts beyond just academic discussions of fan fiction or legal debates about copyright. I'm talking about politics, but I'm gonna leave it at that for now. So no matter the definition, fan fiction has taught me many things over the years. It's taught me that the world isn't black and white. Pretty much everything we love is problematic, and that's okay as long as we see it and we're willing to change it. And it's taught me that Hermione and Ginny should have ditched Harry and Ryan and done the job themselves. <laughs> Fun fact, before the sign of the door said Beyonce was robbed, uh, it said be critical of the media you love. So I think you're in a, you're in a really great place to uh, deliver that message, and it's super true. Everything we love has problems. We all have problems, but we can still love it, as long as you don't force that love, right, Katie? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Don't make me say it. Disingenuous. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Don't make me say it. <laughs> Guys, 
So I need to get that paper I tossed so cavalierly aside now. It's cool, but not functional. I'll never do that again. Coming up next to the stage, we have two more storytellers this evening, both from Versus the Universe. This gentleman is a producer for them, as well as a songwriter. Ooh, I like musicians. This is Sam Begich! Yeah. All right. Well, so just like, uh, just like uh, Katie Dwight and Eric started the show talking about songs that maybe existed uh, or could exist in the world of these shows, I'm going to be talking about some music and uh, uh, some of our favorite properties as well. So the year is 1966, and Gene Roddenberry is bringing Star Trek to television. Uh, he's transporting us into the future, to the year 2260. Um, now, Star Trek would go on to only have three seasons, but would spawn six movies, several spinoffs, shows, a cartoon series. Um, did you know that the theme song has lyrics? <laughs> this is true. This is real. Uh, now, the story goes that perhaps Gene Roddenberry only wrote the lyrics because he wanted a 50% cut of the royalties, <laughs> and he never intended them to be uh, performed or recorded ever. However, they do exist, and they, uh, they, retell, they tell the story of Kirk's uh, wife or lover on Earth wondering about her man out in the stars. This is true. Uh, so I would like to share this song with you. <clears throat> Pardon me. Beyond the rim of the starlight, my love is wandering in star flight. I know he'll find a star clustered reaches. <laughs> yes. Strange, a star woman teaches. <laughs> the green women. I know his journey ends never. His Star Trek will go on forever. But tell him while he wanders his starry sea, remember, remember me. This is real, you guys. <laughs> so now I'm going to tell you some other songs that also have lyrics that you might not know. Uh, are you guys familiar with the film uh, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Yeah, this is one of, uh, one of my favorite John Williams scores. And it turns out John Williams is a, a cheeky guy, and he likes to write lyrics for his songs, too. So it makes, makes it kind of easier to remember. Have you ever played, like, the John Williams game? Or, like, uh, you try to, try to sing Superman, and then Star Wars, and then, uh, and then Harry Potter, and then Indiana Jones. Try it sometimes. Hard. But here we go. Oh, can I get a little, uh, I need a little audience participation here. Uh, this will be your note. Hey, a little dun-dun. Indiana, raise the stakes. Find the treasure. Why'd it have to be snakes? That belongs in a museum. There are booby traps and Nazis. No time for love, Dr. Jones. Thank you, thank you. He predicted the sequel when he wrote the theme song for the first one. Now, speaking of, of John Williams, uh, I grew up absolutely adoring the film Jurassic Park. Uh, and so when I found out that the theme song had lyrics that kind of spoke to my concerns about the film, I was really excited. <laughs> it went something like this. Jurassic Park, Jurassic Park, where the dinosaurs will eat you. 
We spared no expense, electrified the fence. Nature finds a way, hold on to your butts. <laughs> very good, very good. Thank you, thank you. Uh, well, so speaking of uh, 1960s television, um, there's a little program called Doctor Who. That's been around for a long, long time, all right? So it turns out that... Uh, the piece, the synthesizer for the piece was created by a, a woman in the BBC Radio Laboratories who was never credited for her work um, with the synthesizers. But she was helping recreate the lyrics that were written with the song. Uh, so here we go. It's very, very simple. Doctor Who. I've never actually seen that show, you guys, so I'm just going to skip that. Okay. Um, <clears throat> all right. Now, we've done, we've done television. We've done, um, uh, we've done films. So now let's talk about video games. Now, I, uh, when I learned about this one, I was really surprised how well a Japanese translation worked out when <laughs> Super Mario Brothers came to the United States, okay? Uh, you know, and in the, wor- in the world of these early video games, before it t- you took the time to type in all the code for these songs, the, the songwriter would sing it, and he would, uh, well, he had some lyrics. So, uh, I need a little help again, you guys. Can I get a little... I like that. Mario is a plumber, and he has got a cool younger brother. He's chasing a princess taken to another castle by Bowser. Pounding bricks and jumping on top of Goombas. Koopa Troopers hide in their shells. Is it safe to just eat a random mushroom? Let's find out. It's cool. (laughs) Can you reach the end of the world? Coins inside of a brick. Mom keeps hogging the controller again. Why are you such a dick? Thank you, everybody. No, Sam. Thank you, Sam. Oh, my God. That was so good. So this is true. I, uh, I wrote a sketch for the Nerdalogs where two people are, are pitching to a desperate Paramount uh, for Star Trek Blu-ray extras to write lyrics to all the other theme songs, <laughs> but along the veins of the original. So it's just, uh, I wish Mike Janda was here because he does this way better. And he's playing a guy named Dave, who is a big deal in the San Jose alternative reggaeton scene. And he goes, this is the next generation. You saw the first one. This one's the next. Our new captain, he is bald, but he'll still find time for Star Women. So, and it goes on like that, and you go through all the shows, etc. Pretty great. Also, the Mario Brothers song, uh, Captain Lou Albano has sung lyrics to that song called Do the Mario. I recommend YouTubing that. It's not about the game, it's just a dance. And it's sung by Captain Lou Albano, so pretty great, guys. We have one final storyteller tonight, kind of the... Uh, the progenitor of uh, Versus the Universe, I guess. Uh, last time I introduced him, I said something that he ended up putting on their business cards. I don't know how I can top that. Uh, but let me, so let me just say some nice things about this dude. He is uh, just effusive and wonderful and creative and such a great force in the Chicago uh, comedy and media scene. And I'm really glad to know him, and I'm glad that we teamed up. Glad he's here. Uh, wonderful presence. And let's hear from Aaron Amendola. <laughs> Damn, that's the first time I've ever been called effusive. I don't even know what it means. It's like friendly and outgoing and like... Oh, yeah. I, all right, I'll do that. I think that's what it means. If that's not what it means, I'm sorry. That's what I wanted to say. Uh, <laughs> the only time I've ever used the word progenitor is in uh, Resident Evil. <laughs> the progenitor virus. Well, showing my cards early. Great. Um, hey, everybody. Welcome to your stories. Before I get into this long-winded thing I wrote, uh, I'm part of Versus the Universe. Uh, Sam... Liz, uh, Jamie, 
uh, and, and a bunch of people we work with in the Chicago community uh, make up versus the universe. Uh, we do live shows, podcasts. Uh, we do cosplay music videos. We just do weird Music. It's awesome. Uh, as Sam uh, showed everybody, I was like, you're using my lyrics for some of these. <laughs> when you were doing Doctor Who, I was like, does he know I wrote lyrics? Holy shit. Uh, but we just launched the Patreon. We'd love to keep doing uh, all this cool stuff in the Chicago community. Uh, a Patreon, if you don't know, you donate money and every month you give like a dollar or two and it comes to us. Uh, and if you want to sign up for Patreon tonight and donate tonight, we will give you an action figure and a sticker. Uh, we have a bunch of stuff will be available after the show. Um, but enough on that. Um, I've been feeling weird ever since November. Uh, and so I had a lot of thoughts and I remember last year I talked about how fan fiction is a way to grow narrative uh, and how it's, always an enhancement of narrative, even when it's bad. Um, and I began thinking about that. Uh, it's a year later. A lot's happened since then. Uh, just to give you an idea of the things that have happened since then, uh, Final Fantasy XV's been released. Uh, after 10 years, it happened. Uh, I finished it today. It's okay. Um, the Cubs won the World Series for the first time in 108 years. Uh, the U.S. Treasury decided that Harriet Tubman should and will appear in the $20 bill. Yeah. Uh, Samantha B got a TV show, and it's better than Final Fantasy XV. <laughs> um, Captain America Civil War is a movie. It's real, and it's good. Uh, though John Wick 2 is probably better. Yeah. Uh, and also, Donald Trump is elected president of the United States. There's the turn. Um, now, there's plenty of other things that have happened in the past year, but I consolidated this so we'd save time. I didn't say all these things were good. I'll let you decide if those things were good or bad. Uh, if you don't like John Wick 2, you're probably objectively wrong, though. <laughs> um, that being said, have you ever felt like you're just being trolled by reality? Because that's what 2017 feels like to me so far. Um, right now, the fan fiction that keeps being written in my head is the one where somebody else was elected to be our nation's leader back in November. And I can't stop thinking about how the day after the election, my girlfriend and I could have been uh, having champagne and celebrating instead of ordering sadness pizzas and binging Steven Universe. Um, I can't stop imagining how my friends would feel a bit more safe in a world that was more accepting. And, and, and I, I wonder about the Affordable Care Act. And I, I lose sleep thinking about how other countries must be laughing at us because we just took this uh, smart, well-spoken commander-in-chief and replaced him with a human potato monster. It's, it's very nerve-wracking to me. Uh, in November, my just-within-reach version of America became fan fiction. It became a thing that's just in my head. Um, I have several fan fiction versions of my life in my head. There's a, there's a version of my life where I kept traveling through the country performing after college. There's a version where I moved to L.A. and continued training, and I tried to make it as a writer. There's a version where I picked up, moved to Japan, and just kind of, like, got lost and had a new name. And there's a version where I became Spider-Man. Um, they're not all realistic. I probably could not have made it in L.A. But um, where there's a will, there's a way. Uh, I had direct input on how all of these versions, these potential versions of me, ended up turning out. Um, I had a certain amount of power. I don't dwell in the roads that I've never walked down, but... I'm having trouble with the version of America I dreamed up in my head before seeing the results on election day. I had, uh, I had one vote. I voted early. It doesn't seem like a ton of power. The term fan fiction should not be used as a pejorative, and I hate people that use it in a negative connotation. Uh, 
It is a gateway for us to see the world the way we want to see it. This is the reason why I read Star Wars fan fiction, where we see a group of bisexual or even uh, any sort of variation X-Wing pilot overcoming insurmountable odds. This is the reason why I ignore the parts of Lord of the Rings where every single character is a white dude. Um, this is the reason why I'm hungry for stories set in Hyrule where Zelda's the hero and she's tasked with saving Link. It's called the motherfucking Legend of Zelda. It doesn't really make sense. Uh, also, holy shit, those things are like so much more interesting than what we're given. Um, and right now, during a time where we have a racist autocrat in the most prestigious office in the United States, I very much welcome a change. I, uh, I seek to imagine a world where things are better. To quote the U.S. Constitution... We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. It's a pretty good line. It uses commas well, which I personally respect. <laughs> it tasks us with imagining a world where things are better for all, not just for some. During his presidential campaign run, then-Senator and now all-around rock star Barack Obama titled his speech, A More Perfect Union. That was his fan fiction. That's what I'm going with. He envisioned something that wasn't perfect, and he wrote down what he thought should be true. Obama tried relentlessly to bring people together and envisioned an America where we all work through and with each other towards a common good. He believed that if we change the world, then we change the people who lived in that world. In my mind, Obama definitely has a lost season of something like Buffy or Angel in his head. I think that he's out of office. He should concentrate on things that really matter, like what happened after Sunnydale got swallowed up by a hell pit at the end of season seven. And I know that there's comics, but Obama would be the one that would be able to get a screenplay made, hoping that he hears this. I need to believe that this is something that he would do. I need to believe that there are people out there, powerful and influential people, that have the same ideals as I do, the same wants. I need to believe that someone out there plays through Final Fantasy XV and says, hold up, the story is bullshit, I'm going to fix it myself. I don't think Obama's a PlayStation 4 guy, maybe that's Elizabeth Warren, who knows. <laughs> but I firmly believe that if we change the media, then we change the people who consume that media. I need to believe that somebody in a government position gets why I feel anxious all the time. I understand it's a huge leap, but if somebody in Congress gave me a knowing nod after I explained why parts of Rogue One bug the fuck out of me, I'd feel a lot more at peace with our country right now. What kills me is that I can call our senator's offices, I can march, and I can donate to the ACLU all I want, but I don't know if any of that is working. I know that the effects of this are not going to happen tomorrow. I know it's not going to happen in a year. But I want to know that it's working. Right now I know fan fiction is not going to save the world, but it helps me visualize an environment where I feel more comfortable. It aids me in escaping to a place that I'm not embarrassed sharing with my friends or my loved ones. If I can picture it, then I can believe it will materialize one day. And it's not all good either. Some fan fiction sucks. Some fan fiction goes off the rails, and I've written it. <laughs> I still think the act of putting down a pen to paper and getting your thoughts out is an incredibly constructive one. We're definitely not going to see our dreams play out in the ways we want or at all over the next four years. It's up to us to think, write, plan out what we want this country to look like in the next five to ten years and take steps to make that fan fiction a reality. In some teeny, tiny, microscopic way, we've got the same thought process as our leaders and the people that we want to emulate. We're putting our thoughts on the paper and then we're fighting to bring those ideas into the real world. 
I said earlier that having one vote wasn't a ton of power, but I didn't say that was our only source of strength. We have more power than any generation that has come before us. We have the internet, and sometimes it sucks. I've been to Tumblr. We have more ways to communicate our messages now more than ever with tweets, Snapchats, YouTube videos, podcasts, and other things that are probably cool, but I'm in my 30s and I don't know what they are. Even if it is poorly worded, ill-conceived, or just a plain fucking mess, you need to write something. Please write and please create. Please put the better versions of our time and place out into the world for others to see. If we change the media, then we change the people that consume that media. Fan fiction actually matters, and it's a very small thing in the scope of everything that is happening right now. But if you can show representation in a story, somebody is going to read it and they are going to feel represented. Barack Obama started his presidency by declaring that he wanted, in quote, a more perfect union. And then he set out to make that change happen. I think Barack Obama writes fan fiction, and I think that you should too. Thank you. That was wonderful, man. Uh, I don't even know what to say about that, except that was so great. Thank you. Every show we've done since November, what was it, 9th, uh, has, the, uh, I mean, reality intrudes on these things, obviously. And tonight, it kind of just all, I was thinking, maybe we'll get through this one and we'll have this nice little escapist bubble. But I'm glad we didn't, man. That was so great. And I, I think that was really inspiring and uplifting. And I hope you all got something out of that. So if I can get Dwight and Katie back to the stage, please. You guys like video games, yeah. right? This is from uh, this is from The Last of Us. <clears throat> oh, <man>. Yeah. <laughs> is that a good on man or a bad on man? <laughs> What's the tempo? I will. Da 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 da.
thank you to Kevin Reader. Your Stories is a proud part of the Chicago Podcast Co-op. If you enjoy Your Stories, you might also like Open Ended. The vulnerability behind the glass with the side of sass. This radio show seeks the people behind the screens through stories that intersect technology and culture. For more info on Open Ended, visit openended.fm. This has been a Nerdalogs production. If you'd like to help make more things like this, please visit patreon.com slash nerdalogs to donate today. And go to www.nerdalogs.com for more cool stuff. Thanks for being awesome. Thank you all. Thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.